Hi, and welcome to F-World, the Fragility Podcast. Together with our guests, we explore how the force of fragility manifests across the world and in our day-to-day lives, and how we can build a more resilient future. I'm Mihaela Karste, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Paul Biska and Johan Biermann Bergman. And today we are speaking with Hannes Müller. Hannes is a tenured researcher at the Institute for Economic Analysis, which is a research center of the Spanish National Research Council. He also directs the master's program in data science for decision-making at the Barcelona Graduate School of Economics. Professor Miller is somewhat of a polymath. He has interests that are diverse, ranging from machine learning, political economy, development economics, conflict studies, and industrial organizations. However, most recently, his research focus has been on how conflict can be predicted using millions of newspaper articles, which is a project that you can find at conflictforecast.org. This research project has become a key resource for global work on conflict prevention and has led to collaborations with the Spanish Central Bank, the German Foreign Office, the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, the UN, World Bank, and many, many others. Hannes, welcome to F-World. Thank you for inviting me. So first, we want to get to know our guests. We always want to know, how did you come to where you are today? Where did you grow up? Why did you become interested in conflict, in data science, in topics that seemingly are quite varied? So tell us a little bit about you, your story. I am uh, German. Uh, I didn't grow up in a very fragile context. Uh, it's quite the opposite, I would say, in the countryside in Germany, in southern Germany. Um, and um, I, I studied economics and um, at, as my diploma thesis, I studied the transition in Russia and Poland. And perhaps this was my first encounter with something I would call frigidity. So I studied the reforms, uh, you know, shock therapy, basically. And my question was, why did it work in Poland? and Why didn't it work in Russia? Um, then I moved on to uh, Switzerland. I, 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 I did an internship at UNCTAD um, and uh, did some field missions in Nepal um, on like trade in SMEs, but there was no fragility element there. And then I moved to a PhD at LSE. And kind of my, I would say, my intellectual starting point uh, in, in fragility studies was a joint paper with Tim Besley where we studied the end of the conflict in Northern Ireland with, with a uh, peace agreement. And we did this through um, housing prices. So we looked at housing prices. And that was kind of like the beginning of a long journey, I would say, intellectually and, and, and kind of my personal interest reading more and more about this issue. Um, and that led me to kind of the way you characterized me now, <laughs> but it started that way, I would say. I'm curious, what was the outcome of your PhD paper? Why did it, the shock therapy work in Poland and not Russia? <clears throat> so that was, that was my diploma. So it was like a time when, you know, in Germany, we didn't have Bologna yet. And it was, uh, you had five years to study uh, or not study. And um, so uh, I actually, uh, the outcome, I, I found these, uh, so Eurostat or, or some, some European statistics office actually ran um, surveys in Eastern Europe 
at the time, Central and Eastern Europe at the time. And they, they were really interesting because um, you could see that um, Polish, the Polish population was really in favor of markets, right? So there was like a big majority, 80% or something like this, <clears throat> were in favor of market. And then when shock therapy hit, this went down to, I would say, something like close to 50%. So maybe 60 or 55% were in favor of markets. And then it rebounded. And in Russia, it started out and it's like 60% in favor. <clears throat> and then when the reforms hit, 30% in favor and 70% against. And so I think this tells you like the starting points were so different in terms of what people thought and, and, you know, even if it was, even if it was not a purely functioning democracy, I think in the end, the, the outcomes were not so opposed to what actually the population thought. So my conclusion in a way is that it's actually kind of politics filtering through. It's a bit like, you know, my saying, I think a little bit the, I was finding my feet as an economist in this, and it was a bit like the, you know, it's the politics stupid. Now it's, as opposed to like, it's the economy stupid. It's a bit, I ended up saying like, it's really, it's really hard to pin it to, to purely economics things. And I ended up saying like, you know, probably politics. So at the very beginning of your career as an economist, you, in a way, delved straight into politics, straight into society and, and, and social issues. Um, uh, and in other words, almost straight into those things that are usually harder to quantify. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm curious, how, how has this early onset, this view of the world for you, um, influenced the thread that kind of binds together all your different interests. I mean, you look, look at machine learning, you look at very technical things, uh, and yet you, you, you sort of um, keep this angle. Um, how has that developed at some point uh, as you've learned more about, let's say, the classical technical tools of an economist through, through your, uh, your PhD uh, and later through your research? Um, I think I find politics fascinating uh interesting and i mean I, I you know my my father was a member of parliament so at our kitchen table it would always be about politics so all the conversations were about politics and uh and so i think that this is kind of like something that that is i i i, I carry with me inherently um but then you know why 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 does this carry through to my work i think that um I've always found that thinking about kind of these um, political systems and how the economy interacts with politics and how it interacts with the social aspects of life are very healthy things to think about for economists. Because I think economists have like a reputation for being like cold-hearted, uh, rationalistic, rationalizing and I, I think that's very often very unfair because there's a lot of work inside economics that tries to kind of think about the political process <clears throat> and, um, and takes it very seriously. Um, and so, so I think that I, I really place myself inside that, that stream inside economics. But I think that's not like, it's not a, like a f small fraction. I think there's a 
it's it's ma it's not that it's mainstream basically it's the part of the mainstream inside economics that that does this right so you have this revolution in 2001 that was when i kind of grew up intellectually at lse in a way uh with with the papers by atsumoglu and robinson johnson right about uh the role of institutions and this was something that when I wrote my diploma, I already had like as a notion, right? So it's really important, this thing, right? So was, there was already the, the seeds of these papers were already laid much before in the 90s. And so then somebody finds an instrument and pins it down and everybody's like, oh my God, there's causal identification here, right? And, um, and, and I think that, that to me led to this kind of, I was really part of that group or, or part of that intellectual group of people that carried that into economics and was very optimistic about like that you could uh, figure out causality. So sticking to our framework and still take these things into account. That's, um, I think a fascinating thing, you know, just listening to you, I, I reflect upon the fact that in, in my studies of development economics and fragility, I've always assumed that it's always been about institutions. But clearly, of course, it, it hasn't. But it's it's great to get that that perspective on it. I think um, another aspect that I uh, found fascinating in in um, your paper on uh, on the on the fiscal state capacity and kind of the you know connecting that to institutions was this uh, example of of the interplay between institutions and and norms and the mm -hmm. idea of the 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 parking tickets for the diplomats. Uh, in in um, in New York, um, and and kind of how that shows the the, the power of institutions, but also the the uh, the, the weakness of, of institutions unless uh, the incentives uh, are are aligned between the institutions and and the actors. Um, so, how should we think about kind of the 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 institutional? Um, uh, institution formation uh, and uh, as it relates to to fragility and and particularly perhaps uh, as it relates to to uh, to fiscal uh, capacity as as you discuss in this paper and 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 um, yeah what, what how should we think about uh, about this this topics <coughs> um, what's your what's your entry point so I, 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 I have to say that, you know, I'm, I'm really following uh, Tim's view on this. So uh, it's definitely not I'm like this spearhead in this line of thought. You know, if you look at, at Tim Besley's work and Thorsten Persson's work, I think that uh, you, you, you see this strong stream of state capacity. And then now they're basically to that framework, they're adding these cultural aspects, right? And so uh, the paper that you read, uh, this chapter, in this uh, IMF compilation, uh, I, I think is 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 kind of a brainchild of that of that um, of that stream of of uh, work, and uh, you know I, I it was very fascinating for me to see people interact in the writing of this compendium because there was an understanding in the room, or at least. For most people that, you know, uh, th so th I think uh, Paul Collier always was repeating this to the room. He said, like, you know, if, 
if you are thinking about fragile contexts, you can't take Denmark as your example because it's too far away. There's too many things that are different on too many levels. You will not find the path to Denmark, right? In, in, because there's just like so many complementary things that, you, that need to happen that it's very hard to see that path. And so that influenced me uh, heavily, I have to say, on the, on the work of how to get out of fragility. I think it's very useful to think about next steps uh, and have like some idea where you're going, but to be very pragmatic and try to kind of see how you, how you can generate peace uh, best by taking the baby steps towards one direction. And then to be aware that uh, there is a lot of complementary things that can happen and need to happen, right? So uh, just to give this example of, of, of culture and institutions, when I arrive, and I'm just gonna, you know, bring this out of fragility more to my own life context, right? So um, I'm generalizing brutally now, but like when, when I arrived in Spain as a German, um, there was a lot of like uh, people saying like, why are you paying these taxes? You know, uh, or people being very proud that they that they were taking unemployment benefits and having like a nice time with it, right? And like, like saying like, oh, we're showing the state. Oh, this is you know, haha. And I was thought, yeah, I mean, but we are like we others here. We're sitting around the table. We are the state. We are paying you, right? So. And I think it's 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 this uh, it's this awareness of like uh, what you are doing with your tax money is to the benefit of everyone, uh, and and if if you're shirking off, then that harms everyone, right? But I think this is something that is built, and I think that what what kind of Tim and Torsten are saying is that. Actually, fascinatingly, this is built by charging people taxes and providing public services because the moment you go and knock on their door and say, like, you didn't pay tax, you better pay tax, right? They were going to go, oh, okay, damn it, I got caught, I need to pay tax, right? So then they start paying tax. And then the moment they start paying tax, they're looking at their friends and think, he's not paying tax, why am I paying tax, right? And so then there starts to be like this game changes and people socially enforce this, right? So there's a reinforcement mechanism that starts to bite where people are like, why aren't you paying tax? I'm paying tax. And so this is working. So this is like, seems very abstract. Now I'm going, you know, now I'm doing the Denmark mistake, right? So, but it's not like, so, you know, Raul de la Sanchez has done this, has run RCTs in Congo where people are the taxman cometh, right? And knocking on doors and looking at the reaction of people and how they're reporting. And it's, it has exactly the social effect that when you have this interaction with the state and it's not terrible, then people are improving their attitudes towards paying taxes, right? And they expect more public services in return. So if you favor the public services in that moment, and if there's corruption scandals in that moment, then you kill everything, right? So you're coming People are like motivated, they're looking at you, and then you, can't, you better don't fail them, right? If you, don't, if you fail them in that moment, then everything falls to pieces because they're just going to be upset that they got taxed and they receive nothing in return. So it's this give and take, like throwing public services immediately at people and showing them that something is done with this money is like an incredibly important aspect of this 
of this uh, building this trust, right? And I, I do think that's the way out. So actually, I, I hope we can go a little deeper in this because what's the temporal aspect? So you just described, okay, you pay taxes and then you expect public services in return and you better not fail to give those public services. However, many, many times governments fail at that, that step. And then, so I have sort of two, two separate questions emerged. First, how fast do you need to see the services in order to build the trust? And then the second question that emerged in my mind was, okay, if you fail, then the level of trust will go lower than it was previously. It's almost like the, the baseline moves down and you get caught in a lack of trust, trust trap if you do this several times. Yes. So how do you dig yourself back out? And do you have to first show a track record of being able to deliver before you're asking for more money? And I'm thinking here in the, the countries that have been doing this sort of repeated causal loop almost over decades. So yeah, first question, <clears throat> how soon do you need to see the results? Because so uh, you have Two, two people born in Romania and one in Sweden that you're talking to today. So we have a very different perception of how efficient government is with taxes. So first of all, let me say that, you know, because people, I think, always think when, when somebody says culture, people always say, like, think like, oh, like singing, like telling fairy tales and like until when have, has everybody switched like in fairy tales they're telling, you know, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is like attitudes towards something. And I think these can change very, very, very fast. I think it's surprising in a way how fast these things can change. Um, smoking, right? In, in my lifetime, and actually it might be being here within a decade, the attitude towards smoking in Spain has changed dramatically. And in the US, I'm sure you'll, you'll see the same. In Sweden, I'm sure it's the same. I don't know what it is in Romania, but like in generally speaking, I think there is, no, <laughs> shaking your head. No, I, I think there's, so, so there's these things, right? Uh, and, and this is just one example, there's, there's other examples um, that, that, are, that are where, where it's changing very fast. So I, I do think these things can change very fast. Then how quick do you need to be in order to change the situation? Uh, I think, I think I think you can usually take your time. I think just generally speaking, the question is a bit more like how fast can you be, right? I mean, are the incentives of the political actors aligned to actually then go and provide these services, right? And that's where it usually fails. It's just like they maybe maybe the IMF forces them to 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 in the stabilization pact, right? So to to collect these taxes, but then like. There's no structure to actually deploy all these public services. No capacity. Yeah, exactly. Right, and so and the, and nobody wants to build this capacity either, right? So, I think that's I see that much more the problem as like the timescales are not right. It's more like it never comes. Like if you would, <laughs> like, it just ne it never happens, and um, and and I think there's one one example where it needs to happen very fast there's this again Donald Sanchez has this really interesting study of Eastern Congo 
where he shows that armed actors are much better in taxing and providing public services because, you know, they do everything at once. They move in and then they provide uh, justice services. You know, it, it sounds absurd, but, you know, there is some base layer of, like, don't steal, right? And so there, there will be some provision of, of services uh, when, they, when they become stationary, the stationary bandits, right? If they become stationary bandits where they provide these services. Is it uh, almost subsidiarity? They're closest to the people. They're right there yeah. in the space. I think it's that, but I think it's also like um, it's a smaller organization and it's not that it's the army, right? So it's like these armed groups and the army fighting it out, right? And the army comes in and says like, we're not providing, I mean, we're not providing justice services, right? We're not doing that. What we are doing is like providing security. So they're going in and they're like, okay, security established, right? And then nothing else happens. And people are lucky if it's actually security, right? So, I mean, so it's also not imperfect security provided by the state, but then, um, but then nothing else. And, you know, the, until the bureaucracy reaches these, these places, it just takes forever. And so I think in these circumstances, what I would, I mean, what I would consult people to do is like, you know, have the, have a, have a truck of something come right the first day when the military arrives, right? And say, hey, we're going to do registration of land or we're going to do, uh, you know, some something that people care about or like we're going to look at the well immediately, right? So I think this is like, this is, I think this way, I, I, in these, when you're competing, <laughs> right? When you're, when you're not the only one, when you're competing, you better be fast, right? Because the others are fast. So let's, switch for a second let's go back from drc to to spain and i have two questions in, in in mind for you because you basically started with the following story you said you know people were not paying their fair share and they looked at this as a victory against the state you know like look what i'm doing with my taxes i won in a way but what they didn't say at least most of them was we're going to go and build a different state and on that state, we're going to pay taxes. Now, this is interesting because just a few years ago, before all of us were, were focused, you know, before all of us worried about Ukraine, Spain, in a way, was one of the epicenters of fragility in Europe with possible independence in Catalonia, with the history of the Basque uh, sort of uh, movement and others. So then, how, how would you reflect on what helped Spain kind of avoid that moment, navigate through that fragility moment, and ultimately, for you as a, as a researcher, what is fragility? How do you define it? Um, how do you measure it? How do you understand it? And where are the places that you think, or the aspects that you think international organizations and actors who are working on this issue have done well, and where they need to improve? So this is a, a two-pronged question that is uh, interesting because it's like, makes me talk about Catalan independence, uh, the Catalan independence movement, which is uh, a tricky issue being inside Catalonia. Uh, and then, you know, the more abstract thing. And I think I'm going to be sadly not connecting them very well, but um, I think that I learned a lot of sad things uh, in this context, uh, being in Spain and like looking at the state's reaction. 
Um, I don't think the state did a really good job. I think that we got lucky. This is my personal opinion, right? So it's really, it has nothing to do with research I do. Like, I think I need to state that very, very, very strongly. Uh, I think we got kind of lucky with the government change uh, that everything relaxed when the PP left. And, you know, it, that, that was actually kind of corruption scandal spiraling and like the judiciary stepping in and then like Pepe being out and then Sanchez taking opportunities, right? So it's like, I don't know, it's like a lucky break. But let me tell you one story in this context, which I find uh, revealing, that was, was very revealing for me because I was, of course, I'm a German. Like I'm always saying like, why are you, why do you want to have a smaller place? Why would you like want to have a boundary? I'm. I would be like, you know, you, you should all be Europeans. You should be like, we should, I was, I didn't understand this at all. Right. And the Catalan independentists around me were always saying, uh, you know, don't understand. They don't see us uh, as equals and it's they and us. Right. So, and so there was the police violence on the 1st of October. And then a few days later, the King announced a speech. Okay. Now the, King is not elected, obviously he's not elected, right? So there's no electin, election incentive for the king here, right? He's not, doesn't need to think about, well, how do I gain most votes, right? Um, this only cast, actually it's the only, I think it's by constitution, but the main role is like keep the thing together, <laughs> you know, at all costs. And, and, and I mean, all the Catalans hate the king, right? So that's kind of like, it's part of the story, but so I thought, okay, if I were the king, I would do the following. I would give one third of the speech in Catalan for sure. Yeah. He speaks Catalan. Um, and I would throw the symbolism out there and I would be very, very firm in saying, you know, I'm your king. Like I'm also yours. Like, you know, make me, uh, let me serve you better. Tell me what, what I can do better. Like, you know, um, so that's, I would appeal like that to my people. Right. And he did the exact opposite. He said, like, you're outside the law and we will come after you and that you will be suffering. And it will be like, and actually he confirmed what the independentists around me were saying. It was like, you know, it's like, it's like there's this colony and we need to, we need to pacify it. So that to me was shocking and revealing, right? Because then I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, these, it's these two things that are communicating with each other and they, and they, they trigger each other, right? Uh, so I do think that that's, that's, that's a problem very often. Uh, that, so, yeah. But now, okay, abstracting away, abstracting out of all of this. Um, you know, I think... For me, the key thing, and this is, I think, new, interestingly, I mean, I don't know whether anybody has said this, but I've watched a few episodes of F-World, and, you know, I think that uh, I've never seen this anyone saying. I think the key about fragility is that it's, uh, at its core, a statement about the future. It is not about uh, um, a description of the now. Because if we say that a vase is fragile, you know, 
we are not saying that it's broken. We are saying the vase might break, right? And so to set the kind of my criticism of how we're dealing and measuring and doing things fragility is that we let the vase fall on the floor and if it breaks, it was fragile. And then we call it fragile. Oh, this vase was fragile. And then we throw the next one on the floor and like, oh, this one was also fragile, right? And I think that's, that's, that's a big problem, right? So our measurement of fragility is, is backward looking and that leads to an entirely policy process that is also acting too late. And so, I mean, I, I do forecasting, so therefore maybe I need to say this, but we need to have more forecasting, like serious attempts of looking into the future and thinking about whether a situation is fragile now because it might lead to a breaking point in the future, right? And I think that the interesting, interesting problems are those where it's not clear that something is broken right now, but it might break, right? So the things that are broken are the easy, easy things. They're clearly fragile, but the interesting things are the ones that are not broken yet. And so I think that gearing the policy process towards that, towards the fragile things would be really useful. No, I, and it's, I think it's hard to deny what you're what you're proposing, and and I think uh, you're right in saying that we haven't observed this uh, future-oriented aspect of fragility enough, and and I think it's a really important one. But when you talk about these vases falling on the floor and, and crashing into a million pieces, um, it it does um, take me from the idea of fragility. And, and really connects it to conflict because, you know, that is sort of what, what conflict and armed conflict in particular does to society, right? It, it splits up different uh, factions, different groups, uh, and, and uh, afterwards, or it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult, as we know, to, to uh, get a ceasefire going as we're seeing currently in Sudan. And, and even, uh, you know, as, as you highlight in several of your papers, the propensity of falling back into conflict once that vase is, is 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 broken, it's so difficult to find all the pieces and kind of put it back together again. So, in your mind, maybe building on the on the vase falling down metaphor or or taking another one, if you will, what is the relationship between between fragility and and open conflict? Uh, maybe both conflict in the sense that you know managed conflict and also then. A conflict in the sense of, of armed, open, violent conflict. So yeah, I think that's a very good question. Um, and and you know, let me be very clear. I'm 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 really speaking from the data perspective now. And I think that's a very robust kind of pattern that I'm going to talk about now. So the first thing is conflict is is persistent. Conflict is something that lasts. You know, like it's, if it starts, then it usually escalates. And it keeps going for some time. And so it's a bit like the weather, like what's the best forecast for the weather tomorrow is the weather today. So if you're in peace today, then you're more, you're very likely to be in peace tomorrow. And if you're in conflict today, you're actually very likely to be in conflict tomorrow. So these two things are both stable, you know, stable. I mean, it's a bad word for conflict, but yeah, there's a stability in conflict. And, and 
the bad thing about conflict is that it's also pulling situations back into conflict. So it's, it's also persistent in a very nasty way in that something that pacifies after conflict then tends to draw the country or the region back into conflict. I mean, I don't know where this is coming from. Honestly, if somebody told me like, okay, these are the five factors that lead to this, I would be very happy. I'm sure I can think of a few, but it's just incredible how this pattern is there in the data, no matter how you look at conflict and how you look at this, it's just like peace right after conflict is very fragile and it becomes incredibly fast, becomes more stable. So if you just keep people from fighting for a few months more, you already change the fundamental trajectory of a country. I think people completely underestimate this. Like it's very, very, very important right after conflict to do the right things to 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 get to a trajectory could we just uh focus a bit on this issue of conflict and outline for us and and for the audience a bit what are the macro impacts of conflict because one element of course is the time that you just mentioned you're stuck in it for a long time once it happens but what are the other ones you mentioned you can uh, even your previous paper about um, asset prices and and and, and violence just na name a few so that people can have a kind of a map, if you will. Yeah, I, 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 I studied, so m m large parts of my own career academically was based on that question, so I can talk for hours now. But uh, um, so I think the main thing, and I, so, the, so the, the main thing is fear and change in expectations. Why is political violence so harmful from a macroeconomic perspective as opposed to crime? Many, many more people die in crime, homicides, than they die in armed violence, organized armed political violence. And yet, if you look at the crime data and you look at fluctuations in crime data, you don't see much movements in the macroeconomy. You see a civil war breaking out and the economy, by and large, of course, there's exemptions to this, but by and large collapses, right? And why is that? I think it is because the, the atrocities and the randomness of the violence just lead to a spread of fear in the population that leads to large displacements and entire areas become kind of very difficult to travel to. Um, sort of transportation links are stopped. People don't go to their jobs anymore, right? And so you have the entire kind of production sector collapsing. And so, and so this is what you see then in the macro data. You see very, very large contractions of GDP uh, with the outbreak of a civil war. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's basically, I think it's the worst thing that can happen to a country, economically speaking. And um, and so that doesn't recover. That's also another thing. I mean, there's, the jury is, I think, still a bit out there. There's some controversy around this. But generally speaking, there is a lack of boom phases after civil war, right? So 
it's not the same as after like Second World War, like Japan and Germany going crazy in like growth rates and booming like nuts. And civil war after civil wars, you don't tend to have that. And I think that's a puzzle. I think it has to do with these expectations about the conflict not changing that dramatically. Uh, people are still afraid. They still hate the other ethnic group. There's a lot of political kind of uh, instability under the surface. Um, and and that's an important part of this entire collapse thing. I think the research has shown that there is uh, strong effects on, on health, uh, you know, through like child stunting and mental health, obviously. And so you have an entire generation being harmed and scarred uh, in that country that goes through a civil war. And so that scarring stays inside the labor force. And so you have like, you're trying to drive for the brakes on basically. Once you had a civil war, it's like, you don't get back to this dynamism, uh, generally speaking. And so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a huge disaster on all fronts. And of course you see the pictures, right? You see the, the humanitarian disaster. That's the most visible thing, but it has this, it has, it's really the tip of the iceberg. There's not, there's a lot below, below that. If we could go back to these parallels between sort of conflict and fragility, you, you had already mentioned how likely it is to fall back into conflict once a conflict ends. And you also just said that there's a major difference in the recovery from an internal conflict versus one imposed from the outside. Even though the physical destruction may be the same, thinking buildings, roads, infrastructure, schools, people dying, unfortunately, but that just like you gave the examples of the Second World War, you know, you the recovery from that external conflict was much more efficient and didn't lead to to another conflict. Now, where I want to go to fragility is, first of all, I really liked how you you framed fragility about being about the future. And the the question would be, in your mind, is the presence of conflict sufficient to make a country fragile or is there a certain dose of conflict? In particular conditions, let's say in a more resilient country, I, I, I was trying not to use that word, but I still ended up using it, where just conflict by itself without additional factors may, may not lead to the same toxic outcomes that you've just described. And I'm just curious if, that, if that's the case. It's kind of a challenge. It's none, I don't expect you to say there is a case, but... No, I think there are cases. I, I think that people adapt to the craziest circumstances, right? And so if you think of this fear and expectation factor, the fact that you keep having conflict in a place uh, just means at some stage that people start to adapt to that, right? Uh, the more psychologically resilient people will stay or will come back even, or like will, you know... Um, Let's take the example of Israel, right? So Israel is booming and uh, it's a puzzle. It's a total outlier in all the, when you run regressions, but you have a residual and like it's the residual of, of, of Israel is just off the charts, you know, it's totally off the charts. Um, 
that's you know I think that there's ways to explain this. I think there's cultural aspects that are very very important here, uh, but I think that's that doesn't mean that you know we shouldn't care for the next country that is about to fall into the trap, right? Because I think that the likelihood that it's gonna be super resilient and whatnot is is very low. Um, and towards the intensity, I think what is what is important here is to think of like, and I usually think of at the country level because I'm I'm more the macro kind of person. But of course, it is important to think about like the extent of the conflict within the country and how it affects the economic centers of that country and how much it doesn't. Right? Think of India. India is a super violent place but like there's a corner of india of this huge subcontinent that is violent and the and large parts are not violent right and so of course you know you're not if you're in in new delhi then of course it's the, you're not thinking about conflict every day right and so so that is there's important aspect because that means that you don't see it at the macro level you, you do see it and there's many studies on this they see it at the at the at the regional level you do see it but uh, at the macro level it's not that visible so i was also wondering how could we make those measurements of fragility and we don't have to dwell too much on this but fragility is a statement about the future and we tend to use causal dr or drivers of fragility as forecasters so in your opinion, what would be a better approach to understand fragility before it actually breaks? Yeah, I mean, I think forecasting is, is really fun and useful and needed. So I would, if anybody hears this, please start forecasting for aspects of fragility. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't, you, Harsh Desai is a really interesting guy. He worked for the OECD for the last uh, fragility report, and I kept begging him, please, please, please start forecasting, right? And I think, I don't know why, maybe they thought this guy, this crazy German guy, you know, he's very biased or whatever, or whether there were institutional breaks to doing it or something, but they refrain from doing it. And I mean, you can show that, you can show that the measure fails exactly on these fronts. It's like there is very nasty surprises and it's exactly those countries that weren't broken before that, but they are the new ones that, that are not picked up by that fragility measure. And, you know, I think it's, I don't think it's great. I think, honestly, I think that that's, it's not fun, right? Because that is really what everybody complains about. Like if you, any, every second speech of Guterres on this issue is like, we're acting too late. We're acting too late. It's like, yes, if your measure is like, you know, if the World Bank has a fragility measure that is saying you have UN peacekeepers on your ground and that's your definition of fragility. Yeah, that's literally like your vase is on the floor and like the pieces are everywhere. It's like, yes, great. That's really not going to help you get ahead of the curve, right? But no, so, so you know, you, you mentioned, I wanted to just uh, do a fun thing because we had, you know, in another related episode, 
uh, we talked to uh, Chris Blattman, uh, whom you I'm sure know. And and you mentioned just now, Hannes, uh, you know, if you said if if someone could explain the you know the 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 reasons why these countries fall back into conflict, and I think. You know, that it's kind of what what Chris uh, is attempting to do with his book in terms of thinking about these five factors that that he uses: unchecked interest, intangible incentives, commitment problems, uncertainty about relative strength, and 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 misperception. So I was just really curious, uh, and and I'm sorry for for kind of springing this on you, but but just what are your reflections on 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 you know, uh, trying to explain these types of, of human factors and how does it relate to the macro level uh, where, where, where most of your thinking uh, is, is, in, is invested uh, when it comes to forecasting? So let me first say that I'm a big fan of his work and I think he's, he's bringing, I, it's very recently I, I, on a conference I was recommending his book and it's very funny that he repeated these five factors and I was trying to get them and I was like, ah, this, that, this, 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 and then, I failed it. I was like a three or something, but I mean, I, 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 I listened to the entire book and uh, I, I think it's amazing what he pulled, his managers to pull in, right? Um, um, so I think, let me, let me, let me, let me take a tangent on your question, just because I think that, so it's two different things, right? Forecasting and causal kind of understanding the causes and understanding of why something falls back in and like seeing the pattern in the data that it falls back in and using that pattern to predict are two different things. I always bring this example of like, there's this type of birds that fly very low before rain falls, right? And then farmers say, oh, they're flying very low, rain will fall, you know, it's a forecast. Nobody gets the idea of saying like, we should trap these birds and then we're gonna have good weather, right? So. This would be absurd. Did anyone right? try? No, I, okay, yeah. I, you know. You're getting me there. You're getting me there. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's a spiritual, somehow, they are the, yeah, maybe they're the gods of rain. Um, exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's, you see that. So, I'm always, I'm, people, I, I'm a big fan of forecasting. I really love it. I really like it. But I will not be tempted into saying it has, it's, it has anything to do with causation, right? Exactly for this reason. It's like, it's a different thing. Right, so we are forecasting, and we say, "Look at this country; it's really dangerous." And then we need people like Chris, right, or anyone on this podcast, basically, to go and say, "Like, oh, it's probably because of this and this and this reason," right? And then you're then you can think about policies, right? So nobody should think about policies based on our webpage because our webpage is just completely useless for policy recommendation. It's really useful for saying, like, where should you start looking for policies to do something, right? And when, like, so this, I, I, I think there's these two things. And then the micro to the macro, you know, I think that, 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 that is a very, very interesting question. And I think we don't have a very good answer necessarily about what the right level of action is at each point in time in conflict. Do you want to? try top down, talk to the top elite group and like be done? Or do you want to look at like former grassroots kind of initiative? Um, with uh, like in work with Christopher Rao, we studied um, <clears throat> power sharing agreements. These are usually signed by an elite group, 
And we find very large effects of these uh, things on, on peacemaking. So I'm kind of thinking that there must be at least one aspect of this that can be dealt with at the top layer. If you have leaders that have power over their people or can lead them right, effectively, then I think that top-down might work to some degree. And then I think that whether that lasts is then right when you can, when you, if you reach like escape velocity, can you escape this planet conflict? That's a different, that's a different uh, question. And um, I, I, I suspect that that's exactly where like these other things bite. And we actually show that in our review. It's going to be published, hopefully, uh, it's revised news a bit right now, so we should be careful. Uh, um, um, we're showing in a later chapter that it's kind of like you see these changes that are access to justice, uh, non-exclusion on the gender dimension, non-exclusion on the on the urban rural dimension, non-exclusion of uh, social group and something like this. These are the things that are then in the long run most strongly associated with reductions in violence. And so kind of my interpretation of this is like there needs to be a change that is kind of um, vertical. Like so the elite is talking to each other horizontally and then at some stage, if you want to make it stable, it also needs to be like the elite with their own people need to kind of find a way to re-jig this relationship where people can start to complain about the elite and say like, hey, I didn't, you know, get justice in this case. And so my interpretation of this is that if you always have to renegotiate, right? Chris has this beautiful like image always of the cake and then there's this kind of piece that is large and that you're negotiating about. If you constantly, every time something changes, you need to renegotiate, right? Then this becomes inherently unstable. You really want this kind of not to be true. And I think the way to do that is to have non-excludable goods as much as possible. Like everybody always benefits no matter who's in government, right? So then it doesn't matter, right? And then all of a sudden, like even if you have changes in the power relationships, they don't immediately lead to like a complete meltdown of the agreement, right? And so that makes it more stable, I think. Um, and so that would be my hunch. But, you know, who knows? I think this is like really a lot of work to be done uh, still. And just relatedly, you know, looking at, at the, um, the conflict forecast uh, website as well, um, and and connecting back to to this word word that slipped out of Mihela earlier, resilience, and which also the themes that you were just mentioning in terms of of having you know uh, an inclusive uh, you know a lot of uh, non excludable goods, inclusive institutions which would be required perhaps to pr produce those non excludable goods, etc. It it I, I'm just curious of how how do you think of the relationship between uh, the kind of prevention aspect that you're forecasting uh, in in your in your uh, on your website and resilience which is now you know gaining momentum as 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 the the gold standard of what uh, we should be doing in terms of prevention so uh, how, how do you think about that uh, and then i'll stop uh, i promise connecting the micro and macro <laughs> no no I, no i think i think this is a very good question Let me first be very uh 
splitting hair kind of very economically German in this. So what's our definition of resilience here, right? Okay, so let me give you my, my little spiel on this. I think robustness is a system that doesn't fail because uh, it's very interesting if you look at engineering problems of robustness, you see that usually it's redundant systems that have a modular structure where they're made redundant. So if like you have a flight computer, it has an electronic and mechanic part. And then when the electronics fail, the mechanic part will still keep the plane going, right? And so uh, this is what, for example, uh, separation of power does. You have a parliament, you have a judiciary. If people vote for a crazy president, you might relate, then uh, that person cannot do anything that person wants to do because there's a judiciary that will push back on some initiatives, right? So that's robustness. The system is not in complete collapse. Now, resilience, resilience is, to me, getting back up. Like something punches you in the face and you're like, you get back up. And then they punch you again in the face and you get back up again, right? So I don't think it's a great thing, like in terms of countries, to think about this, like, oh, look at this. They had a civil war and they're back on their feet. It's like, no, please, let's not, let's not do that, right? On the micro scale, like for talking about people, I don't know. I, I honestly, I think it's like, it's, it has this heroism stuff linked to it, right? We are always like Rocky, like he gets all these punches and then he's lying on the floor and then he's like bleeding and he's getting back up and like it's this image of resilience and like I rather prefer people not being punched in the face, right? So I, 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 I really don't like this resilience discussion too much, but that's really coming from my like perspective on this term of resilience, right? Maybe there's a different definition where it's a wonderful thing to be testing resilience. Um, and I think maybe it gives some pride to the victims of violence, right? So maybe being able to overcome really terrible things that happen to you and then being there in the room and being like strong, you know, I think that is great. No, I think that's, that's great. But I think that Holding that too high, I think it's like maybe that's part of the, maybe that's actually, maybe that's part of this discussion of like we are letting the vase fall on the floor and we're like, look how happy this vase is despite the fact that it's 1000 pieces, right? It's resilient, amazing. And we're celebrating it. And it's like, no, let's not drop vases on the floor, right? I think, I don't know, maybe that's my take on it, yeah. No, and then, and then and then we go after uh, constructing new non-destructible vases or auto-reconstructing vases instead of preventing the fall in the first place. Exactly. So, uh, speaking about preventing the 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 fall, all of what you've said until now, in a way, leads to the the question about about what you love to do, which is forecasting, and and about why is it so valuable for prevention purposes? Um, you were very clear about that there is this, there's a, obviously a reason for, for causal thinking to explain perhaps what, why the past um, was the past and what happened. But to predict the future, 
you need something else. And you have called, in other papers, you have called prediction a hard problem. So what is a hard problem and why is conflict prediction you know, a hard problem and what policy implications does it have? Let's start from there and uh, take us on the journey to forecasting. So I'm glad you do that. That's my favorite topic. So, um, um, so the hard problem of prediction for prevention is that once you're out of this gravitational pull of the previous conflict, you've cleared, the skies are clearing, everything looks great. You're in a place where it's very unlikely that you'll have conflict. Right, But those are the circumstances under which we want to be really good in forecasting conflict because these are the circumstances that where the vase is kind of on the brink of falling. Right? There's, it's not clear. This is complex. The risks are low. The baseline risk is low. So from a purely machine learning perspective, you're dealing with what's called an unbalanced data. There's lots of zeros. You're swimming in a sea of zeros and you're trying to figure out which one of those is one, which one of those is a situation that will escalate and become a conflict. And that's a hard, hard problem, right? It's a hard problem for two reasons. One, the unbalancedness itself, so the baseline risk being very low makes it hard. And the fact that kind of your mechanics, the, the machine cannot help you anymore because machines only work with a lot of data. And because hard onsets are rare and we only have one world, there is just not that many cases you can learn from. So you cannot teach the machine all the things the machine wants to know to predict the next one. And at the same time, I think it's really important to predict these ones because these are the ones where the vase is not on the floor. And so it's this combination of hard and important and yeah, machine fails that, that, that makes it so interesting to me. <clears throat> and so, yeah, go. You said the word machine several times. And in, in the, the world of non-data scientists, machine learning is still a black box. Can you, can we sort of break down, because we, we are going to move on and we want to see some examples at conflictforecast.org, but help non-practitioners, non-data scientists that care about prevention understand what is the set, standard sort of toolbox in machine learning and what, what do you have to work with? How should they think and what should they even maybe learn more about? So I think that the, the main thing to start thinking about is the difference between supervised learning and unsupervised learning. These are the two main areas that are relevant for, for this problem. Um, <clears throat> so supervised learning is you have zeros and ones. So that's the typical thing is like you have pictures of cats and dogs and somebody went and said, okay, this is a cat, this is a dog, this is a cat, this is a dog, this is a cat, this is a dog. And then you show these things to the computer and you say, cat, dog, cat, dog, cat, dog. And then 
eventually the computer will know what a cat looks like and what a dog looks like. Okay, so that's supervising the learning. <coughs> Unsupervised learning is like, you don't do that at all. You just show the computer cat and dog pictures, but you don't tell the computer, this is a cat and this is a dog. Good luck. And you might think like, but that doesn't make sense. Why would the machine learn anything? And it's like, haha, think about, I don't know whether you have children, but like, look at children, right? It's like, babies are like, they see their hand and they see, okay, this is something else than the other thing, right? So they're just like, in, the, in terms of, in the lingo would be clustering, like it's like segmentation. It's like, oh, this is different. This is something else. And so the first step in all of our minds is like making differences between things, right? So this is different than this, and this is something else, and this is something else, and this is something else. Like, if you have done that, then you already did a big step into like understanding the world and like making inferences about it, right? So it can be very, very useful. <clears throat> That's exactly what we do actually at the web page. So we have text, and we, we want to use that text, and we want to use text because text is fast, right? You can update it monthly or even faster if you want to. And you can use it for forecasting. And so we want to use it, but it's super complex. And I said like, okay, we, the machine cannot help us very much, right? So the, the, the other machine is where, so they have two machines, right? One is like looking at the text and the other machine is doing the forecasting. The forecasting one is actually a supervised machine. It's like, it has seen the history of humankind or like at least since 89 and knows what was a zero that was followed by a physical war and what was a zero that was not followed by a civil war. So it can learn. It has this cats and dogs kind of machine, right? But there's the other machine and the other machine is just looking at text. And now you could say, okay, make that other machine really dumb and just feed the raw text to the second machine. And the second machine will get like unstructured text like with grammar and all the complexity of human language and they'll try to make sense of like 400 cases of civil war, it would be completely impossible. We just like, we would just like, we would just not get anywhere. We just start to see patterns in the data and say like, oh, uh, because like in 2000 and 2001, there was a mention of like, you know, Osama. It must mean that Osama is always like a civil war word and therefore I'm going to try to find Osama and then every time it comes up, like it's a civil war and so on, right? So no, that's not going to help you. You need to kind of aggregate the data up. And so first what you need to do is like, that's what we do is like you do unsupervised learning first and then you can solve the supervised machine learning part better. <clears throat> so that's basically the question is like, how much data do you have to learn from in your prediction task? when you're trying to figure out your taste of fragility. And if you have lots of data and lots of cases, then you can do very fancy things with supervised learning. And if you don't, then you need to do a lot of stuff with unsupervised learning or theory, right? Or like thinking about the world and sticking that into the machine. So for, for those of us who are still learning about what you've um, just said, give us a sense of what makes a good model for you. And, and the basics, you know, you are trying to predict conflict. So I assume this means political violence. Um, do you, how do you define what you're trying to predict? 
And then what are the variables you choose? You, you've made the case uh, in the earlier part of our conversation that causality is not very helpful. You then focused in on the text. Tell us a bit about what goes into the into this mix of what I use, you know, we're trying to, 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 to explain. Lay out a bit this kind of thinking for us. Yeah, so um, the first thing is we want to define something, want to define a phenomenon, right? So you have to think about what's the phenomenon you want to describe. <clears throat> and we, what we do is we, we take cutoffs on the violence data, the violence data being the political violence data. And there's two databases basically you can choose from. One is ACLED and the other one is UCDP. They're both great. We use UCDP just because UCDP goes back in time longer. And since I'm hunting these rare cases, I want to have long timelines. I want to learn from like a lot of past, as much past as I can get. So then we take two cutoffs. I'm doing cutoffs because I think classifiers are really nicely interpretable because then you get a risk kind of thing. Other people prefer to forecast the intensity of conflict. And so wherever the system is, it can always still, still do useful forecasts. Our system kind of becomes useless the moment you cross that threshold and you are in conflict, then it's always going to predict 80%, 80%, 80%. On the webpage, if you go to Afghanistan, you'll just see this mine stuck to 90%. And it's because, you know, yes, it's because it is in conflict all the time. And then it's basically telling you, if this conflict were, if this country were to go back to peace, it would be back to conflict with 90%. And so, okay, we define a phenomenon. So we define a phenomenon that is kind of like reasonably low level violence because that's what we're interested in. We're interested in kind of catching kind of like the typical cases would be like all Latin American countries before things happened more recently. Uh, Arab Spring countries before they destabilized, you know, uh, the Ukrainian war, uh, not uh, the latest invasion, but like the earlier before Crimea was attacked, right? So the early ones or like, uh, I mean, there's many, many examples where you have this kind of like boiling kind of low level violence where, which might escalate, but it's a low level. And <clears throat> so so these circumstances is what we're interested in. And so once we have that defined, you then need to think about like, what are you doing on the right-hand side, so to speak, on what you're doing with the variables that you use, how do you construct them best to forecast? And here, I think you need to really think a lot. And the interesting thing I think is that you need to use your human mind to think a lot and you cannot use the machine to do the thinking for you because the machine will just be looking for patterns in a very stupid way. And you need to think about like, what do I think as a human are really useful patterns to predict? Of course, when you have, a, when you have this uh, small data problem, right, where you have to have few cases. <clears throat> and so what we did was we used topics. So these topics are coming from an algorithm that is an unsupervised method. So it doesn't need labels. It just like takes the text and looks at the text. And it's, for me, honestly, still today, it's a bit like this kind of like saying like technology, technology sufficiently sophisticated is magic. Like to me, it's still magic. It's just like you feed it 6 million texts and it comes back and it says, 
this text is 20% economics and 50% politics and 10% conflict and you know and then it does that for all 6 million articles and it also tells you what words are inside politics and so on so if you go to a web page and you click on a country and you scroll down you see the composition of the news landscape for every country into these topics and that's the machine does that completely alone with us interfering with it and so once you have these topics or once we have these topics we use these topics and the change in these topics to predict now it's interesting that we have this conversation now because i just finished teaching this so i have a lot of technical stuff in my head that i would love to tell you but let me just say a few things that that are that are important here for example what do you do with the fact that there are some countries that are almost never covered in international news right so like ghana i'm just making this up but like ghana is not covered a lot for sure in the in the news and how how are you going to deal with the fact that you know the topics what do you do with the topics what share of topics do you attribute it if nothing is written on ghana right and what do you do about the fact that these factors that you're capturing, which of course there is causal factors here below hidden somewhere, right? Um, so with the birds, it's like the air pressure or something where the insects then fly low and then that's why the birds fly low, right? So it's, it's, you're hunting the stuff and you're like, you're thinking about it. And how do you get to that, uh, to that kind of, uh, smooth capturing of these factors and so what we do is like we do something that economists will love it's we use a capital stock of text we say text accumulates like investment accumulates in the capital stock so if you have a lot of stuff written in the country that leads to a peak for example imagine like a financial crisis hits the country right then at a sudden the ghana kind of like one article per month pattern is broken and it has like 200 articles per month at a sudden now all of them are on economics right and then you have this peak and then if you were if you weren't designing it the way we did then you would the next month you would go back to baseline right but what we do is like we say accumulates and so you have you're sitting on this capital stock of economics and that capital stock now decays and so you have this kind of like one year decline where the capital stock of economics falls and you give the algorithm the time to use that capital stock, that declining capital stock to forecast, because maybe this financial crisis triggers other things three or four months down the road, and you still want to have it inside the system to, to, for, to do the forecasting. So that's an engineering lingo is called feature engineering. And we spend years on this. Like this is years of work of trying things and like figuring out whether this works or that works. And, and so a lot of stuff is there. That's, that's where a lot of the, the interesting work, but like very in the plumbing kind of work happens. You gave the example of Ghana, and I would assume that you would choose text that's all in one language. How do you deal with, you know, do you, is the technology good enough that you don't care about the language at this moment, or do you just choose a single language? The other question I had, can you... So just to understand better what you do with cases where you don't have a lot of data, it's almost like whenever the data occurs, that capital stock, then you amortize, like amortization, I'm, I'm mispronouncing the word, I guess, 
um, over time. So then you, you, you're not sort of all spending it all in just the month it occurs. Is that what you, what you meant when exactly. you say you, you're leaving? Exactly. Okay. So th we get this question a lot. And there's actually the no, there's no, I think there's a lot of trade-offs here. So we basically, we use the, we use the text data we can get, <laughs> you know, uh, our online archives of digitized news content back to 89. That's consistent, right? You want consistent archives. It's just like so hard. It's really hard. And so we pick. We pick, we make our lives easy. We pick English sources, English speaking sources. And then we were lucky because <clears throat> I think, um, I think it was MI5 in the UK government decided that it would be really important to keep tabs on the Soviet Union and what, what, the, what the Soviet Union is up to. And they invented this thing that's called the BBC Monitor, which is like a news service that translates international news from local sources into English. And so thank you, MI5. Um, it's still going and I really hope it survives because if that thing goes, then we are screwed, uh, honestly. Um, and so we use that, that's like the bulk of our work. Then we use uh, some, um, you know, uh, press agency, uh, channel we use that as well and we use the new york times and the economist and a little tiny outlet that's called latin news because our coverage from latin america was not perfect and that's that's a really interesting news source for latin american news and so yes they are biased these things are biased right so there's somebody who selects it um, it's all the Western viewpoint kind of, <clears throat> um, but I'm asking you, do you prefer locally biased news or do you prefer like Western biased news? And I think depending on the country, you can come up with examples where you prefer one or the other, Like Optimally, I think you would want to have like a cross check kind of thing and like have the truth if that's possible or like close to the truth or like that would be wonderful. It's just like, again, there we're hitting this constraint of like, there's not that many archives, but actually we, we will probably have a, a lot of money very soon in our project. And we are thinking about expanding the new sources and it will be dep depressing, but we're thinking about taking just other European news that are not in English. So like Le Monde and like El País, just to get like different colonial powers and their things that they care about. Um, and then we're thinking about like, you know, what do you think would be a good Chinese newspaper to, to follow? Or what would be a good Russian newspaper to follow? I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm very curious if you have any cool newspaper that we should for sure use, I'm happy to write that down. So I, um, I have a very quick comment. Deutsche Welle in English, Franz van Katra in English, and a whole bunch of, I even know in Romania, I read a, a news website in Romania, for example, that's in English. 
Yes. So there are European news services in English. I don't know how far back they go, so that exactly. might be a problem. But I would think Deutsche Welle and Franz von Katra yeah. might go far, far enough back. But I, I also have a question here. I mean, how do you account for censorship in the media? Because yeah, in, in China, you're not going to get stuff about Uyghurs. You're not going to get, I mean, Russia may report uh, right now, uh, you know, a tremendous victory <laughs> happening in in uh, in eastern Ukraine or something. So, um, but if I understand you correctly, and perhaps we can um, feel free to share a screen at any point and, and walk us through some country examples, it would be great to actually see yeah. and, and show our, our viewers how this looks like. But what you're ultimately saying is you have a measure of violence that you get from UCDP, and you're trying to see how, what let's say, the written word is about those events from the whole world that you have access to in terms of news outlets in English. And then you have a cutoff point on, on violence. And the whole, what, what you are chasing is that level of, if you will, you know, when is the powder keg going to explode? It's not fully blown up yet. It's it's really not, you know, but but it's it's about to. And the challenge and the hard problem is, is knowing exactly, you know, when to cry wolf ultimately. Yeah. Exactly. So let me let me let me share my screen just so the you know we we, we can talk talk about specific things. Um so I hope this works now. <clears throat> can you see can you see my screen? I actually so have not yet. Ah. Okay. Yes. Now we can see it. So this is Spain, right? And um, and there's two models at the benchmark. So this is the armed conflict model forecasting twelve months ahead. So every point here is like a forecast, and this is important. These are what's called pseudo out of sample. So we pretend we know here at this point, we pretend we know everything that is known until the 1st of April. Um, that means we, we have the data from March, right? Basically, 1st of April means like the March data. <clears throat> and we are, we are forecasting 12 months into the future. And at that point, uh, our model said the likelihood of an outbreak of an armed conflict is 2.5%. That's fairly low. Yeah. And what you see here is like you see this kind of slide curving up and then like this jump. That's September, uh, September data point. That's the jump. That must have been something in August, right? And it goes to 17%. What was that? Well, there was nothing to do with the Catalan independence. This is actually a terror attack in Barcelona, right? So... UCDP actually coded political violence in Barcelona at that point. And so the, the machine, this is kind of the vase on the floor, right? So this is like the, these jumps in our models are always like, we're not better than anybody else. Basically, this is just like in hindsight, now the model says like, oh, there were deaths. So that means that it's more risky than I thought, right? And so these are you think of these jumps as kind of failures. These are kind of like the model is adjusting to a new reality. And then, but instead of like what you would see in Germany with the terror attack, let me just do that very quickly. I hope that goes fast enough. Yes. Uh, um, I can't find Germany as a German. That's fine. Uh, so see, this is the terror attack in Germany. You see this goes up and then falls 
steeply down again, right? And so the model yes. didn't see the terror. Well, it, I think it does see the terror attack coming, right? So you see, like, from a very, very low baseline, it's, it's kind of risk is creeping up, and then it's like, boom, the attack happens. Um, but what happens in Spain then? So that's the mix, right? So this is the interesting mix of, like, terror attack, but then uh, <laughs> it doesn't rest, right? So then you have the police violence and then you have lots of stuff happening and it just stays about 15% for a developed country that's more than is comfortable, right? And now let me show you what the what the text model thinks about this. So the text model doesn't know what the violence data looks like. We don't give the violence data to the text model. We we just give it the text. And so what does the text model think? And I think this is very revealing because the text model takes basically, I think, tracks the structural stuff of the independence movement. Right? It doesn't see the terror attack necessarily coming, but it, but, it, but this is a model, I think, of the independence movement. Right? You see that the peak here is the police violence and you see that it then goes back down. You see the it, rising instability leading up to the police violence and then with like backs and force of obviously the stabilization. And so is that this is peak an overlap? Say again? Is the peak from the text model the same as the peak no. from this is late this is uh, slightly later because this is the November. This is the kind of this one. It's like here. Okay. So that's the that's the police violence in Barcelona. Right? And so it, it's like I think it's the uh, here. Actually, the terror attack is here. So it's like it's not taking that as a really strong signal of something fundamental changing in the news landscape. And and so yeah, yeah. So just again, so in the text model, th this is the using the newspapers article, the the, the newspaper articles, exactly. and the best model, the f the one further up, that is basically referring to past events it's doing both so the best model uh -huh, uses okay. the text data and the okay. and the and the violence dynamics right and so the violence dynamics are the biggest drivers of this model because what i said before it's like mm -hmm. when you have violence you have more violence when you recently had violence you will have a lot of violence right and so um these are the, the jumps are always driven by the by the actual violence data but these fluctuations around these are always the text they are driven by the text data usually or like by because we have dynamics inside so you see that there's a decline here that's coming from the eta period like there's still the outliers of the eta period right and it's kind of coming down from that still so so that's that's how the model works and here's you see the topics right you see there's a lot of writing about competition and sports in Spain always because it's always very football-y there's a lot of football stuff on Spain let me, let me give you more uh, interesting country. Let's take the United States. Well, let's take no. Actually, let's take one, which, which I think is very, very interesting to look at. Can you show Google. us also Germany's text model? Yeah. Relative to the terror event, because that would be very interesting to be able yeah. to compare. So let me let me let me show you this. For example, like this is this is Peru, right? And you see that the best model doesn't do a lot. It just fluctuates back and forth, and it. I mean uncomfortable levels, right? Europeans would not be happy with this kind of like level of fragility. This is literally 
a level. This is literally a fragility measure, right? So this level of fragility, Europeans would not be happy with, but they clear, okay, it's fluctuating around. Now, what you see here in the text model is that it's coming from something that's really terrible to something that's much more stable. And then recently, right, with the, with the turmoil, the autocool, all that, it goes back up. And so what you see in the, what you see in the, um, in the, in the, in the, in the text is if you look at the, the march, you see a lot of, of this bubble. You see economics, you see civilian life, power negotiation, national development, right? There's some, all kinds of things, but then there's this kind of violence, military action kind of uh, news. And you see that that's uh, fairly large in the last three months. And my hunch is that, okay, here, that's the peak, right? January. Uh, here, that's this one. That's the jump up. The jump up is like you can't see that here. There's no jump up here because there was no, according to UCP, there wasn't any political killing, on, or, or if there was this one or something. But then the news landscape changed completely in the, on uh, you know in in December, uh, in December 22. And so so that's that jump, and that's 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 this thing here that kind of completely changes the attitude community changes. And so, so yeah, just, let me just show you that landscape before, right? Before this episode comes, you see the cost of war being like really small, right? And you see that there's a lot more talk about politics, diplomacy, uh, and, and, the, and the violence aspect is very small. And so that's what kind of this thing going higher leads to what leads to this higher, higher risk estimate here. So if I'm a you know a, a German or a Spanish or, or a policymaker in, in any country trying to figure out how I should spend my my time and my precious resources in the next twelve months, what are the best questions to ask your model? Uh, what can it answer? What should I not ask it? And uh, what should be my complementary sources? Kind of the top three things that that if you you know you use the, the the forecasting model and then you use these few things, you can have somewhat of a of a uh, you know a, a good handle on on where you should move. Of course, this will be different for different uh, you know for economic policy or security policy. But if there's anything you can say about the questions we should ask the model, what we shouldn't ask the model, um, and and kind of what we should expect to to receive back and, and what we shouldn't, that'd be really interesting. Yeah, thank you for that question. I think that you know. Uh, we are working very hard on that because what we realize is that we present this to policymakers and they all go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, interesting. But then, like, okay, so how, how is this actionable, right? I mean, uh, and so what you really want to do is you want to give people an understanding of the entire conflict cycle. And let me let me just... Uh, Actually, let me share my screen again because I just I I I I, I was really keen on showing this. Uh, I didn't mention this. Big big part of my own journey into fragility is meeting Alexander Ma, you know, and on a conference actually we met on a conference and I was kind of like forecasting stuff and I was like super nerdy about that and so on. And then I talked to him and he was he was giving me more. 
attention and enthusiasm than I anticipated, right? I was this econ nerd who was doing nerdy stuff on stuff. And then suddenly there's this World Bank guy who's like, he definitely, he was the keynote speaker and he was listening to me and I was like, like, oh, really, that's super fascinating. Oh, wow. And so I was like, okay. And I think you will see now why I think it's so funny because uh, ah, I can't share this. Wait in a second. All right, I can't share this. Okay, sorry, sorry. Some technical glitches. So th this is his, or I mean, not only his, but like this is the Pathways to Peace, uh, you know, um, kind of movement. And I think they were already hatching these kind of like ideas about like processes going on and like coming and going. And our thinking at, at uh, contactforecast.org is this. It's, it's uh, like breaking the world into little tiny sp like states, right, that you can define and you can talk to, to the policymaker about. And so, so just, just, to, just to be clear, there are states of risk. You don't want to yeah. break the world into further states. No, no, sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, 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 sorry, sorry, states. That's fine. So there are states <laughs> of risk ultimately. Okay. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yes. So, yeah, state, a state, a state of the world being like you know, water, water boiling, water um, evaporating is a different state of the water than you know, the water being ice. So that's what a state is. Um, and so we define these states, and and the states are like they have different characteristics. They're differently violent or not, right? And so ignore this table it's just more like basically it goes from like super peaceful to super ultra violent okay so this is like state one is sweden denmark you know many many of those countries most of the time <clears throat> and so what this thing here is is basically the exact same thing that i was showing here just in a kind of mathematical formulation namely what this weird thing is showing you is like how likely is it that when you start in state one you end up in state one or you end up in state two or you end up in state three right and so uh let's take state five as an example right so you start out in state five the most likely thing that will happen to you if you look here is state five right okay so this is like confirming what i said before about like the most likely thing that can happen to you is here what, what happened today Now, there is a likelihood that you go back to, that you go to state six, or you go to state seven, or you go to state nine or 10 or whatever, no? And there is some likelihood that you go and de-escalate from that risk, you go to state four, right? And so imagine that you would go to state 10, okay? So like state 10, you, man you, 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 you are very unlucky and you go to conflict. State 10 is definitely a violent state, there's decent, Uh, decent, significant violence going on. And so when you're in state 10, at a sudden, your future has changed at this moment, right? So what are your options in state 10? Well, most likely state 10 again, so very violent. And then also state 11 became now really dangerously likely, and state 12 became very likely. And state 12 is literally the worst thing that could happen, right? So there's a lot of deaths per month, extreme heavy violence. And the door is shut. You cannot go back all the way anymore, right? So before in state five, if you go back to here, there was this state four and three were very likely. Now all of a sudden, that door is slammed through and you cannot go back. You need to go back all the way, like through wiggling your way 
this way, right? On this diagonal, basically. And so... And just to be... Yeah. Yeah. Just to be clear, the, the intensity of the color is probability, correct? It's not yes. the intensity of, of violence. Okay. okay. Yes, sorry. Yes. Exactly. What you just said is if you, if you end up in state 10, you could fall, let's say, overnight from state 2 to state 8, but you can't do another phase change from 8 to 10. You have to move back linearly through all the other states back up. Well, I mean, according to this, according to this thing, right? So you can the best thing that can happen to you when you're in state ten is that you go back to state seven, right? Okay. And then when you're in state seven, you start here. Then you can go back all the way to one, right? So there's some countries that go all the way back, but most countries will kind of get stuck here. Right? Look at this state twelve. Like state twelve, you're like bouncing around to ten, eleven, twelve. That's all you do, right? And so these are hot, very violent places, and then. It takes time to kind of probabilistically go back and shift back. But most likely we'll actually be stuck here in this place. That's the conflict trap. So this would be the conflict trap here. This is honestly the, the best illustration I've seen of A, the conflict trap, and B, the case for prevention, to be quite frank. It's, uh, it's very, you know, because when you see this, you know, you after, if, if you're in state uh, 10, you know, you have to go to maximum or minimum state seven, and then uh, and then you you'll take it from there again, and and it, it relates so clearly back to this spiral yeah. from from pathways for peace. But just just curious about the input for this uh, kind of the data underlying these predictions. Um, yes, is, is that from the model uh, on the conflict uh, exactly uh, so forecast website? Exactly. So this is this is. I lost track a little bit, but this was my answer to your question. It's like, what do you do with this, right? How do you consult people? And what we do is basically we feed all the data streams, all of them, not just one, but all of them, or like several ones, into a model that summarizes them and makes, makes these states, right? So clearly, right, our, as I said before, our outbreak forecast will not be useful for these countries anymore, but we have an intensity forecast that we use to categorize these, this part of the, of the table, so to speak. For this part of the table, right, the armed conflict forecast will not be very useful, but the any violence, so the much lower violence level will be useful. And so we kind of bunch everything together into one kind of like big model uh, for those who speak math, uh, this is like a hidden Markov model, right? Where you kind of try and the computer makes automatically sense all of the entire data uh, and all the different variables and then summarizes it in this way. So it's like, exactly, it's our data basically feeding into this thing. But let me show you one thing. This is, I always keep saying this to policymakers. Um, <clears throat> so the left here is in the 12 states, the mean fatalities per 1 million inhabitants and the mean refugees per capita that are outside the country that come from the country. And you see that basically it's basically flat for fatalities and then 10, 11, 12 are violent and you see how violent 12 is compared to the others, right? With refugees, it's a bit more mixed picture, but you do see that I would say until state six, you see relatively little refugees, and then seven, eight, nine, it starts to be more. Now, if you're focusing on like this vase that is broken on the floor, this is basically what you do. You look at these things and you say like, oh, a lot of violence. This is 
dangerous. We need to do something, right? And I always say that's basically, basically like playing playing chess without looking looking ahead. It's like, it's like you move your you move your figures, but you're never looking all the way into the future. But that's what exactly this matrix that I just showed you allows you to do. It allows you to think about like what's the next step? What's the in two steps? How where would I be in three steps? Right? And then if you look at this very same data, just using this matrix and you kind of it's a very simple operation actually to go from a static view to a dynamic view you see how everything pours into the lower states you see that for something that looked completely safe so to speak nine it's now much closer to 10 than it used to be before right and and 10 is closer to 11 now and 11 is much closer to 12 now right proportionally speaking and for refugee this for refugees is even even stronger right and so what we're working on right now is like we're thinking to help policymakers navigate kind of like their dynamic decisions um, using this kind of model right because okay now comes the bad news what I'm not showing you is like what kind of leverage do you have over the situation at this point right so that's not that easy and I think that's where the where the where the precision of the forecast is really important. Only if you have a really good forecast can you actually do something because then you have an actionable uh, warning, basically, right? And so we need to trade off this kind of dynamics that are underlying and kind of can we spot this dynamics? And uh, of course, because we have constructed this dynamics from the forecast, there is hope, right? We are very close because we have constructed it this way, but the baseline risks are on this state one to five are, are still fairly low. And I think you need a policymaker that has some risk appetite, right? And is willing to engage in situations that most likely will not escalate. So what's based on, on the map, that heat map that you just showed us with the, uh, the states, where do you get the biggest bang for your buck and sort of do you want early action or late action? How and how do does that work? False positives and false negatives. I mean, it's that kind of a... Exactly, right? And so this super interesting question, right? I mean, okay, first of all, you need to say something about how much do you think it costs you to engage in a situation. Right? You need to put your foot down on that because otherwise you can never make that calculus. And we have hunted this number for five years now. We have talked to the World Bank, we've talked to the MMF, we've talked to the UN. We say, like, what does it cost you to engage in a situation where it hasn't you know, been escalating yet? And they say, we don't track these situations. It's, it, it's, that's part of the problem, right? Nobody knows because... Everybody's just engaged in humanitarian and whatever, peacekeeping, and that's when it's already on the floor, right? Nobody even tracks what they're doing. I mean, the World Bank, I think, is improving this. But, you know, the basic problem is that there's no data on this. So basically, we are kind of improving our hallucinations about what this could be. And the UK government, actually, they're now the first ones who are, like, feeding us data. and They're willing to talk to us about their inner things and, and so that's very I'm so grateful 
uh, about this. And so, so we are we are now getting better estimates. And then let me show you the table for these for using these better estimates. Okay, so this is the shape I'm going to show you is under a lot of assumptions, the bang for the buck. It's literally how much do you get out for like a dollar or pound or whatever you want to use you put in. And uh, it's I think it's very telling. I think it's very telling. So it's this. So um, the the darker the color, the more bang for the buck you get, basically. These numbers here are the assumptions on how effective you are. So we're, we are quite pessimistic about effectiveness of action. Where we say like 99% you fail, 98% you fail, 95% you fail, 90% you fail. Okay. And then we, we have these numbers. So like say 95% of the time you fail and you, you're using our state model to implement action that shifts probabilities around slightly. The best state is state eight. And it's followed closely by all of these states. Well, you see, it's fairly from like state three to state seven, or like it's, there's no, it's not a dramatic difference. All this is a big plateau here from three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then it drops off dramatically. So um, 9, 10, 11, can you 12. put it in other words instead of state eight? Is that post conflict? Yes. Is that. Of course. Okay. Exactly. That's, thank you. Okay. So, Go back to this table. Now, this is state one is like most of the observations are here. This is a place where there's no violence, where our conflict risk is very low and our intensity forecast is also very low, right? So this is where most developed countries are most of the time. And then state four, this is where it became interesting, right? This is where it became like, start to think about doing something. Our conflict risk forecast actually at a sudden is high. Yeah, and so you are in a situation where 22, remember the figures I showed you before, this is literally that number, right? This 22 number is Peru, right? Uh, is here, yeah? Um, and yep. and so we are saying Peru, do something in Peru, right? We're saying it's really worth doing something there, stabilizing it, right? Work, work towards helping it. Now, in state eight, you already have violence. You see the violence starts to come up here, uh, not linearly, but like uh, state five, six, six, seven, eight are already fairly violent. Eight is interestingly less violent. We have this ordering because it has super high forecast, right? So this is a situation where the system says this is probably just a little blip in the actual ongoing violence, but actually our forecast says, no, 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 don't trust this number. Trust me, it's going to go back into violence. So these are countries that are kind of recently coming out of violence, probably they don't have violence right now, but they are, the forecast says, yeah, 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 you're going to go back. And this is what I said in the very beginning. I said, you really want to do something when you're just out of conflict and you really want to stabilize it, right? So I'm agreeing with this kind of peacekeeping and all that, right? I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm just saying, this is interesting, do something here, but then, you know, keep in mind that there's a lot of stuff you can do before in states three, four, five, six, seven, that is also really worth doing, right? And these are definitely not places that you would read in the newspaper about, generally speaking. So just one quick clarification, Hannes. 
in terms of so if i'm looking at a at a country on the on the conflict uh, forecast website and i observe from the 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 best model that the forecast for let's say any violence is 20% or 20 uh, at this point would that tell me that it is a state 4 like yeah, is no, there so is it should I infer it back in that way or is that yeah. just the wrong the way armed to think conf- about it? the armed conflict one not the any violence but the armed conflict ah, forecast the armed yes. Conflict one. yes yes any violence any violence is really our super early indicator we, we don't use that for a lot of policy advice because usually one we are talking to foreign offices and development agencies that are trying to keep track of like uh, more violent places and so we use the armed conflict one if we were to track european countries i think we would go much more to the any violence one so yes but the armed conflict over of 20 is is a good indicator of real trouble i think so now if if you think a bit i mean you've in a way you've already answered part of this question but if you think now of the proverbial <laughs> policymaker let it can be in the UK government if you want. Um, ultimately, they are being asked to do something about a problem that will be hopefully solved in the future. And one question I had is, does your model say something about a theory of change in mm. terms of what they should do differently? Maybe when they should do. It. I mean, clearly you you demonstrate very clearly when the time is 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 uh, when is the right time to act. But then um, also maybe to go back to an earlier question we we, we discussed, um, the same person will most likely have reports from various agencies. Uh, those agencies could you could be anything from development organizations writing their strategy, saying this is how we see the country going in the future, to more on the let's say mysterious side, intelligence agencies that have human intelligence underground. They combine it with signal intelligence in the sky, and they come up with their own report. And very interestingly, usually um, countries have a kind of structure process to. To go, to go through what's reliable, what's unreliable intelligence, and then what's high confidence, what's not a lot of high confidence. So how would you carve out in this space the unique value that conflictforecast.org can, can, can provide? What, when, when which cases and how to think about what your research does and how does it augment human decision-making? Okay, so I think that's a very uh, that's a very interesting question, and in many respects, actually, I, th- I think let me first say that I think that the way I think about this project is partly as a lobbying instrument. So I think of it as inside an organization, you have somebody who is responsible for a country, and they think that country is is escalating and then they can go to our webpage and they can look at the webpage and they say oh yes they're also saying this and then I can go to my boss and can say look what's happening in Peru right now we really need to do something about this right so it's like a it's like an objectification of something that maybe people believe already so I think that you know that that's one way of looking at it Obviously, I hope that sometimes we are smarter than the average 
person, right? And so it's also like informing policy processes. And as I already indicated, I, I really hope that it's doing that for the situations which are less tangible and it's like less clear kind of where we are, right? But I think that the third target is really um, is really the kind of academic community almost uh, in like providing data, right? And like you've seen me basically drawing that matrix and Johan said like, look, this is really interesting, right? And I felt very, thank you by the way, so it's grateful for that. That's exactly what I think the kind of thing you can do with this kind of data. And you cannot do that with this kind of data, right? And so therefore this data is valuable without like even abstracting a little bit out of this kind of like narrow, like just a timeline. Um, and so, so it has that value. Uh, and let me just say one more thing. And this is something that it's really important to think about, like how is the forecast done? How do we calculate performance and all that? I, th I do think there's two ways to look at the webpage. One is like a ranking over all countries at every month. And you say strategically, what's our best bang for the buck? Like if you allocate resources across or attention and resources across everything. And the second one is like for the country expert view, where it's like I, I'm tracking my country over time and I think, oh, something is happening, right? Because also like, you can do the opposite, right? So it'd be like, I'm working on the country and I'm trying to mediate between the conflict parties and they are not shooting each other for a month. And then I see on ConfliftForce.org like the thing falling, right? And be like, oh, I'm changing the world. Like this is happening, right? So like, I think that that's kind of like also this non-depressant thing can happen where you like, you're, we are part of like the, stabilization drive where it's like yes keep going keep doing what you're doing right and, and and i think that's that's also important so one part uh, and you actually there was a perfect segue you just did in terms of saying the the stabilization drive because in your in the hard problem paper you also discuss how the uh, how the model is uh, able to also provide propensity scores for that can be used in cross-country comparisons looking at the role of stabilizing factors. So I was just really curious about if you could talk a little bit more around the role of stabilizing factors and, and how we should think about them in this kind of cross-country comparison and what we could draw out from that uh, on a policy level. So yes, um, this is literally work we do right now. So this is this paper that I mentioned before on power sharing agreements, okay? Let me tell you this little story about power sharing agreements. If you look at the world and you look at where have people tried to do power sharing agreements and where have they not tried to do power sharing agreements, and then you just compare these two things, and then you come to the conclusion that power sharing agreements are an absolutely idiotic, destructive idea because every time you have a power sharing agreement, there's violence following the power sharing agreement. Now, that's a bit like saying, okay, you have this super specialist heart surgeon that only gets the worst cases on his table or her table. And then you look at like the average person in that city 
and the people that end up on that table and you're like making the comparison between the two and you're saying, oh, that person is dangerous. Keep people away from that person because, you know, there's a lot of deaths around that person. No, yeah, okay, right? It's because the selection problem here is so big that there's such a strong selection onto that person's table that you see worst things happening. And that's literally the thing that's happening in power sharing agreements. Power sharing agreements are not implemented in Switzerland right now. They're not implemented in Sweden right now because they don't need this right right now. They have strong institutions. Power is shared effectively. Switzerland being like a really crazy example of like extreme power sharing institutions, you know. And so, so yes, right? They're flying around the world and they're doing stuff and it looks really bad. And the news is reporting, oh, another agreement with the Taliban that didn't work, right? And then I, I think it's a, our paper is a little bit therapeutic because what we do is we say, aha, you can use our forecast and you can say, what are the kind of situations under which power sharing agreements were signed? Look at the forecast at that moment or like right before the signature of the power sharing agreement and then look for an observation in another country in another time that had a similar forecast, okay? And now do a fair comparison. Now look at like what happens in the aftermath of an agreement versus a non, like, so it's, this is this propensity score matching idea kind of. It's a bit different, but okay, I, I, I can go into details, but like it's more or less you get the idea, right? So it's like comparing at a sudden, you're comparing people that are landing on this super hard surgeon table and people that don't land on it, but they have the same heart condition. Yeah, and now you're looking at survival rates and it's crazy. So these things work really well. Violence reduction is 60% of violence reduction, 60%, six zero. Yeah, so that's, that's really big. And, and you know, uh, good things happen, right? And of course, not always, that's on average, but that, if that's the average, like think of the, what that means, right? So. Some don't work and then some reduces by 100% or like 80%. And so I think this is almost like a therapeutic thing, right? Where you're like saying like, yeah, keep doing it. Like your work is valuable, even though you don't see it, even though the world tells you, uh, you know, it's not working, it is working, right? Because your, your, your comparison group is so messed up that you need to calibrate carefully for that. And our forecast is actually a way to do that. It's a way to help people make sense of the world and especially the violent world. What you just said right now, and I, I really like the fact that you're trying to sort of lobby people through the this tool, because you had said earlier that there's no data and that people are just sort of reacting. And when you also, when you look at the, the program, sort of, you know, you've got conflict, you have humanitarian programs go in. It's almost like people are acting just on the tactics with zero strategy. Like in chess, you just you just care about this move, not necessarily about winning the game. So I'm curious now because you're using, you know, we talked about data sources earlier and you're using available data, but not ideal data. What data would you want to see? Because everything we've just talked about also depends on people actually acting over across time, right? So you, you need action uh, and continuity. 
of actions. So what data that if, if you could just wave a magic wand, would you want to see and, or you would hope that people would start keeping or what, what would be revealed because there's plenty of programs that were put in place in countries in the past and there were plenty of internal conversations that are not public and you don't have access to, but would you want access to them? So what kind of data do you want? Any data? I, I have a very clear wish list. So the data I, I beg people to keep is policy interventions, a record of policy interventions that were implemented because I think it's ultra frustrating that, and I, I, I mean, there is people start to do this, right? But very consistently, systematically, also going back in time, right? Because you need long timelines. And let me tell you how important that is because there's something that we didn't talk about and this is like a big weak point of our system and let me review this. <laughs> we are pretending while we're doing the forecast that nobody does anything, right? That's nonsense. That's not true, right? So people all this time where you see this curse jumping around, like people trying all the time to influence this, right? I mean, in good and bad ways, but like they're trying, right? Now, what would happen if we had a good measure of what people were trying at the time? Okay, so we could do two things. We could first say, okay, I can actually do causal estimation of whether this was effective. So we would get much better estimates of what's a good policy. Because I can always do that exactly what the trick I just said that we could do. We can do like a risk forecast and then look at like what people did and then we can call these two together and we can match observations that are kind of the same and then look at how effective policy is and at the same time I can improve the forecast right because the forecast actually now is something that ignores something that might be really really important for the forecast right because maybe there was a big risk but then people did a lot of very good stuff and then it goes back down and our, it looks a bit as if our forecast was wrong but it was just like our forecast was spot on it's just like it doesn't materialize and so actually what the machines non-stop learns is that oh false positive oh false positive right and then it starts to not trust itself with the risk because maybe people were doing lots of good stuff right and so of course this would become much more problem if people start listening to our webpage because then our forecast would become useless, right? The moment people react very strongly to our forecast and do important and useful things, our forecast becomes nonsensical, right? Becomes completely starts bouncing around where like we would not see anything. So your anymore. success is your demise. Exactly. Exactly. I think it's a, it's a good, I think that says something good about me, you know, that I'm working on something that will basically make me useless. Um, so, um, I, I, yeah, so, so having policy measures is the key thing. Having a good record for institutional learning and for, for us learning from institutions, having a record of what somebody did at some stage and how much they spent, if that was possible, right? So that would be amazing. So just to dig a little deeper, you would want the just the formal policy documents or do you would you also want to understand how they got developed and i'm thinking here country a country b 
almost similar risk, country A, you do a policy where there's a lot of, let's say, there's not a lot of risk adverse people on that team because we can't forget the the human X factor <laughs> versus country B where there was some pushback and maybe internal conversations watered down a similar policy. Yeah. So would you want to see, and I'm thinking here, an ideal world because we, we've all seen the the behind closed doors, which is in Outlook, the conversations that say, maybe we shouldn't try this, maybe you should try that. What level of detail would you want to see, especially, and obviously with all the resources that you would need to be able to, to process all those mountains of data? Uh, I think it gets difficult there again, right? Because um, you're again back to this problem of having not that many cases, uh, maybe you you gain a little bit of cases because now you can look at the risk instead of the actual realizations. So you're gaining, but I think that it would be quickly overburdened if you start to. So I, I don't know. I think like the most important five policies and how they're implemented would be in like in a very crude way would be really useful already. Uh, of course, like, but you could do you could do standard econ things if you knew how these things come to being, right? Then you could have instruments for like, oh, this is a this this is a good instrument for a policy action why it was implemented, right? You could do much better causal inference, and so so that that that's a possibility. But I think that having better insight into the policy process would more help under understand the causal effect and not help with the forecast that much because the forecast just cannot take that much in and it cannot deal with that much information. So I um, so I have one more question on this topic and that is ChatGPT. Mm-hmm. How is ChatGPT impacting um, your forecast or your work in general? And, I'm, I'm, and it's not just, just ChatGPT. ChatGPT is just the one that's most well-known. Um, and I'm thinking here, media outlets are starting to use it to write articles. There's plenty of errors. So there's good and bad. It's kind of a mixed bag. And I'm, I'm curious how you're thinking about it. I think it's, I mean, I don't know how it's going to, it's going to impact the world, right? And then it's going to impact us through the world. I mean, that's definitely going to be true. It's going to impact news reporting perhaps, and that's going to affect us, but it's going to make news reporting a little bit cheaper. And so I don't think necessarily negative on that front, but the first thing I, I think about like, okay, somebody needs to get, get it to read the text, make summaries of the text that are much better than what the topic model would do, right? And then use that to forecast. I think you, I'm sure there's a paper to be written and a website to be developed using ChatGPT output on text to do forecasting, right? I, I mean, that must, if, if you do this right, that must be better than what we do, uh, for sure. Uh, I don't think it's that easy, but I think it is definitely it's definitely worth a try, you know. And you don't have any concerns about potential errors in media sources um, that might be using it to write articles because it's been found to confabulate hmm. things. But you know, we don't. So it's funny because if you would, you, I guess if you would use ChatGPT to interpret the output, um, then it might be troublesome because then you could pay attention to subtle detail. 
the topic model, right? Think about the way it thinks. It's like sports, economics, right? So like whether somebody writes like the wrong word for that thing or like the grammar is a little bit off or, I mean, the grammar is amazing, but like, if, 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 like, if like events are not, I mean, it's a bit like the errors, the kind of errors that people get very upset about with ChatGPT, I think our system is completely way more obnoxious about this than ChatGPT, right? So, I mean, think of it this way, right? So like we have like this little child that is babbling and like, and ChatGPT is an adult speaking. So like if the adult does it wrong, very likely our, our system will not realize this. So I, I, I doubt, I doubt that will really, I mean, of course, if it's totally made up, I think, yes, but I don't think that's what people are upset about. Fake news. Yeah. Fake news will be a problem, but it will be a problem on all levels, uh, for all aspects of life, uh, not just for our system. So, uh, I can't resist to ask you one more technical question before <laughs> we head towards the end of the conversation. No, no worries. No, no. Fire away. So, um, you may have alluded this uh, to this already, but when you look at the news sources, there is a way to there are at least two dimensions of the news sources of an article that could be relevant. One is what is reported, so whether there are you know, let's say that the facts are right, whether there was a terrorist attack, and unfortunately, you know, even if two people die, it's a tragedy. It will be more significant to your model if the number is 20 or 40 or so on. So is the accuracy, is it right? But then there's also the, the sentiment, if you want. There's also the fact that maybe there's no numbers mentioned, or, and maybe you have economics or politics or instability as one of the big topics. But the, the article can be tremendously subjective. I mean, the, the, same, the same, let's say... Uh, uh, you could have, for instance, a meeting of the elites for the purpose of a power-sharing agreement, but one news source could say, um, you know, how great it is that the elites have met, and this is a step forward, even though no progress was today, this was the first time that this has happened after a long time, or maybe never. Uh, and then another news source could say, you know, of course, it's it's horrible. Um, it's horrible that no agreement was done and everything is doomed. So, do you have a way to control for these and um, for these kind of nuances? And if not, you know, is this or any other, let's say, frontier of where the forecasting um, science, if you want, that you're trying to to promote, can go? Um, so we don't do this. We don't have sentiment inside the model. We have played around with it. We have tried to use it and it didn't improve the forecast. And let me mm. tell you why I think that it doesn't. It's exactly those reasons that we were talking about before. Like if the US media talks negatively about something that's happening in China, maybe that's more telling about the US media than the situation in China. Therefore, maybe you don't want to use sentiment because that would just like lead you astray in terms of what's going on, right? And also, and I think this is really important, I think we are operating on a level where it's not even worth doing a lot of censoring because whether the composition is like more economics and more, when conflict, okay, but you know, there's so much stuff inside our model that is not conflict that 
I'm having a hard time thinking of that dictator which would, who would like then even try to suppress that, right? So I think it's exactly because of this kind of um, crudeness of the model that we are able to get it off the ground for most countries and it works, right? And then you're training on as many cases as you can going back in time. And so that's why it's able to track autocracies because even autocracies will have these kind of, okay, economics goes down. Economics going down, by the way, is a bad thing usually. And, uh, and you know, uh, judicial, judicial procedures go up, right? Police arrests go up. Okay, um, our model will for sure show like a high rising risk, right? And and I do think that is that's you know that's the the Chinese media might totally do that, right? They might like oh, there's an anti-corruption drive we're doing, like we're going after these bad guys and girls, and like yeah, right? So it's exactly in this non-sentiment and the more topic-wise thinking about the world that I think we have a strength. So I think we should head towards wrapping up. And we, we're, we want to ask you about the future. What's in the future? What are, you, what are you excited about in terms of conflict? What are you excited about working? Maybe you're trying to switch away from conflict if you're working towards your own demise. If your success is assured, then... Uh, you're going to have to find a different project. <laughs> In so, other words, forecast the forecast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, forecast the forecast. Forecast the forecast. Your best meta forecast, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me go to my webpage. Um, no, I think that... Um, so there's, there's literally... Uh, last two weeks, we had very good news. Uh, the German government will start financing us. And I'm uh, very excited about this. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And uh, they actually want us to do uh, multidimensional fragility. And uh, they want to, us to move away from just tracking conflict and tracking other things as well. And so in the next more or less two, three years, we'll probably expand the webpage. Uh, I mean, maybe the webpage, but definitely their internal procedures with like additional measures of fragility. And uh, I'm very excited about that. I mean, I'm very interested Still in, in the realm of forecast or are you yes, also- Yes, of course. Kind of my my okay. project application was the story of the, essentially the story of the vase is inside the, the, the project document, right? It's saying like, you know, we have really beautiful multidimensional uh, fragility measures, but they're not explicitly targeting forecasting we should do multi-dimensional forecasts and so that's what we're going to do we're going to do multi-dimensional forecasts we're going Great. to do fiscal perhaps we're going to do gender we're going to do uh climate change and then like i don't think we're going to follow the temptation to merge them again but we're going to have like these three or four or whatever dimensions or six separate and they're going to live there separately and they're going to classify countries differently depending on what what the measure is and i think i'm very very interested in that because at just like yeah i think that some countries are definitely i mean you know paul you know this right working at the imf I, I, it's just like 
fiscal fragility is a really, really important aspect of, of our world. And uh, having, having a good measure on that would be very interesting. I'm actually going to reach out to the IMF for sure very soon, asking what they are doing, what data sources they are doing. And I mean, default risk would be one obvious thing, right? But I think that there would be other things that we need to do. Actually, I want to go to this, like there, there's a political economy, so I'm diverting now again, but there's a political economy literature on austerity and how harmful austerity is to societies. Yeah. Right. And so what I'm really interested in is like, when is the government forced to implement austere measures? And I would, I would, I would say that's a really interesting fragility measure. So on, on the austerity side, one, one, uh, it's anecdotal, but I think it's the prototypical story of Ceausescu's fall in Romania. I mean, in the 1980s, he started to ration everything to pay the foreign debt. He self-imposed an, auster an austerity that almost no one else called for in the name of independence and autarky. Of course, there was a high, that huge sort of the um, interest rates went up after mm -hmm. the oil crises and so on. But so, so there, was some, there was some reason to be concerned about the debt. But what he did is, in the same time, literally impoverished the country for 10 years while building the second largest building in the world, which was supposed to be the kind of parliament or whatever Congress that he envisioned, and it led to his it led to to to, to revolution. Um, mm. and it was literally like shock therapy gone completely wrong in the worst possible way, you know. Also, you you teach people, so put on your professor hat for us for a, for a moment. What should we learn? What are you? When you're writing proposals and you're sending them out or you're talking to various institutions, you must be observing knowledge gaps. And what are those knowledge gaps and what should we all as professionals, not your students have far uh, more time ahead of them, right, to, to learn and they, they might be more well-versed in things like data, data science, for example. But in general, what should we all learn in order to face this, the, the uncertainty of the future and the complexity of it better. Wow. That's a, you, yeah, that you're asking that's tall order. I think it's, I mean, what I observe, I, I, I do talk to policymakers a lot, right? And what I observe is that there is organizationally very little time to look ahead, you know, because it's always the next crisis that keep people, keeps people busy. And so I don't think it's individuals necessarily, and I don't even think it's necessarily the kind of wrong skill set or the wrong attitude even, right? I think it's just like there, there is a certain, there is a certain rush to kind of the next crisis and our attention as humans gets drawn to this. And I think organizations get drawn to this a lot. And so, if I have like an outside person's view, I would rather say, I don't think it's a skill, but I think it's attention that is required uh, to different sets of circumstances. So it's almost like short-sightedness is an emergent property of the exactly. systems we have in place. Exactly. I think there's a myopia. So maybe, maybe 
Maybe we don't need to learn, but maybe we'll become more aware and institutionally we demand more. We apply the solution to myopia, which is glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Should we bring back salons? Yeah. The answer to that, of course, is yes. Yes, I agree. No, I think we should. I think, honestly, I think if it's almost like in the architectural design of uh, organizations, international organizations, that you could do changes where people would bump into each other and like have these mini salons or something like this, or like, right? Uh, I think there's something to be gained on that front. Just, yeah, I mean, no, that's I think, a conversation yeah. for a salon. <laughs> yeah, no, no I, th I think that organizationally there's there's big improvements to be had. But I think you know one thing is I, I I always think back of Max Weber and what he said about like the best organization is the rational bureaucracy, but then it wouldn't be a democracy anymore. So then what do you do, right? <laughs> and I think that <laughs> I, I think that. We face that trouble, right? We face that problem that we have like very leaders true. who might be have very different incentives because they it makes them myopic in a sense, right? They want to win the next election, or like they just want to be seen doing something, right, about this. And then maybe we have technocrats, maybe not everybody, but we definitely have technocrats that are understanding, like, oh, this is going to go bad. We need to do something now, right? But nobody listens to them, and then until it's too late, and so. I think it's this kind of, I mean, my experience with the FCDO was exactly this. Like, we had, I had super smart people there, like, very motivated, super smart, and they get all withdrawn from the project. We were about to do these things that I just showed you, have a, like, a big bash and, like, showing this to the FCDO, and then they get all withdrawn and nobody listened to our output because Ukraine war happened. They got all allocated to doing something with Ukraine, right? So there was no... Right and and I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying that this is like that's that's how it goes. Like the next big crisis is always like the one that's dominating everything. And so I think that that that's that's part of the problem. Actually, I would disagree with you. I think we should blame. We should blame the systems and us people that are part of the systems if we don't take ownership of them. Hmm. Because um, I have stories like yours, very similar <laughs> where. You get to day of, and then the next day something mm -hmm. happens and a government falls and then everything you've done for the past two years just falls apart. Yeah. So, and in that case, that is not okay because who loses? It's actually mm -hmm. the most vulnerable people in society and not necessarily in the societies we live in. Yeah. But you know, my story so, is a happy one because they did come back to me now. So it's exactly the same oh, that's people. Great. <laughs> they, they, they wrote me back and they said, look, it's really interesting what you do. And they pushed us, they pushed our team inside the FCO and they said, you should, we should really listen to what you're saying. They're, they want me to introduce me to their strategy department. So there is, like, because these people care, right? And then they have the time yes. back, they have the time back and then they come back. They, I don't know, it's, I think it's almost like a personal thing. They say, oh, I want to talk to this guy because I think that's really valuable, right? And so, um, I, I do think that if you give people time to look a little bit ahead and then they might be able to do that. But you're right, Paul, maybe not everybody has the capacity, but I think that at least give those that have the capacity to do it. 
So, Hannes, this was a wonderful conversation. This is our longest so far. It's been more than two hours and absolutely fascinating. Before we let you go, can you tell everybody where they can find you online? They already know conflictforecast.org. Uh, um, any other place where they can reach out uh, or find your work? Uh, yeah, I think that um, my webpage, my own webpage, HannesFelixMiller.com, I think it is. Let me see. I think it is. Yes. HannesFelixMiller.com is, is a good place to start. I'm also on LinkedIn if you want to contact me there. That's also fine. I'm happy to link up with everybody. So thanks again. This was absolutely wonderful. And thanks to our audience. Thank you for tuning into Efferald and for making it through the two full hours. Uh, we hope you found this conversation as interesting and inspirational as we did. And please do subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to know more about us, about Efferald, please visit our website at f-world.org and follow us on Twitter at Efferald Podcast, same on Instagram. Thanks so much for listening. 